Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Susanna Black Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. In this episode, a special bonus episode of the pod, we're going to be doing something a little different. We're having a conversation with our friend and fellow podcasteress, the philosopher Jen Frey. We'll be talking about liberal arts, classical education, the canon of great books, and the struggle to maintain sanity when that canon and that kind of education are appropriated for political ends. We're going to be releasing this on her pod and on ours so that the circle of podcasting love continues. Jen is still currently, just barely, an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. She's also a faculty fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and a Nubigen Interfaith Fellow at the Carver Project. As of right about now, or a little bit after this, she is also, or she is now, the inaugural dean of a new honors college devoted to the pursuit of wisdom through the study of classical texts at the University of Tulsa. And she is also the host of a podcast called Sacred and Profane Love, which is extremely good, which looks at works of literature through a theological and philosophical lens. Hey, Jen. Hey. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. All right. Sounds good. Um, so ha- first of all, how do you want to be introduced when we do our separate kind of recording of introductions? Well, however you want. I don't care. You can just say I'm a podcaster. That's all I care about. Jen Frey is a podcaster, and that's all you need to know. (laughs) (laughs) That's the most honorable thing that she is. That's right. Well, I was just really enjoying your Edgar Allan Poe episode, Jen, with uh, Jay. Oh, thank you. Yeah, he, well... He's just such a great guest. I mean, Justin E.H. Smith is is fantastic. And, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, and this is maybe gets to some of the things we're going to talk about, but you have this wonderful series of conversations on sacred and profane love about different authors. Edgar Allan Poe being one that I really hadn't kind of looked at since high school. And it seems to be a bit of a theme on your podcast of rehabilitating people that, uh, you last read in high school and kind of wrote off since then. Is that, is that, is that true? Well, I mean, sometimes I do that. Yes, for sure. I wouldn't say it's the theme, but cause it's kind of, my podcast is really all over the place for the simple reason that I let my guests choose their own book. Um, and so sometimes it's contemporary literature. Sometimes it's weird literature that you've never heard of, but you should have. And sometimes it's high school books. This isn't where we're going to start, but it is a touch on on our main theme, Susanna, doesn't it? Uh, It does. About liberal arts, kind of, do they make sense? Why should we do them? Uh, Is there a place for them? What's the problems with them? Questions of canon. You have the list of our questions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, What should you be reading and why pick those things? And does it matter what you read as long as you are learning to think? Uh, What's the nature of like intergenerational canon discussions um and so on and jen you also have a sort of exciting new piece of news related to all this right this isn't just (laughs) theoretical discussion for you no it's not so i'll be the inaugural dean of a kind of uh classic texts or great books honors college at the university of tulsa starting this summer so um you know i'll be working with faculty to develop a kind of classical uh, or canonical or great books or whatever you want to call it um, curriculum that is focused on, 
you know, philosophy and literature and history to be sure, but also I think more importantly than any discipline, because it's not really discipline specific at all, it's general education, is that the curriculum will be centered around questions that kind of touch at the heart of human existence, you know, so what does it mean to be a good human being and citizen, to take a line from Socrates? Uh, those are those are the big fundamental questions that a halfway decent liberal education will always uh, be preparing students to ask themselves and answer. So this is actually something that you had touched on in a piece that you sent us that you had written. Um, what what is the nature like when we say liberal education? What are you what are you being liberated from and for? I guess is one way to put it. Yeah. So some people, um, I would say a fair number of people today think that what a liberal education is, is an education that is free from constraints and disinterested. And that's not at all what I mean. Uh, what I mean by a liberal education is what the classic text called a liberal education, you know, so if you go back to Aristotle and um, the way that he defines a liberal education as opposed to a servile education, uh, a liberal education presupposes that the student understands that he or she is made for more than a life of work, right? A servile education is education for work, for a trade, for a job. Well, that's not a liberal education. Uh, a liberal education is an education that strives to cultivate the kind of inner freedom that will allow a person to live well in the deep sense of eudaimonia or living a flourishing human life. So that's what I mean by a liberal education. It's an education that aims to make a person free. And now you ask free from what? Well, I would say... Um, not necessarily, I would say free from the coercive pressures of systems of beliefs that uh, maybe you feel like you can't question, right? So a liberal education, as I understand it, promotes the kind of healthy questioning of the beliefs that you have received from other people but are not yet yours because you don't actually know why you should or shouldn't accept the belief, right? You just know that you've been told to accept the belief. And maybe the belief is really good, maybe it's true, but you don't know until you yourself have an account, right? That you can accept on your own terms. And that's precisely what a truly liberal education strives to do, at least as I understand it. That seems to me to be in contrast to, I, I always wonder about this, something that is kind of intrinsic to the tradition itself about that has to do with child rearing. Human beings should be formed by their parents and trained in habits of virtue um, that are kind of not unquestioned, but like are really ingrained in, in them from a young age, helping them do things like pass the marshmallow test, you know, or, you know, whatever, like eat well and get up on time and 
get your homework in and you know well sure i mean but this is higher education i mean we assume that you know how to get out of bed in the morning and and make yourself breakfast right uh and that you can get along with others and i mean if you if you don't have that baseline i mean you simply have no um you have no chance of making it in a university and i mean i do think and I'm on record saying that uh, higher education, um, you know, will sort of rise and fall with primary and secondary education. And I think that all the problems that we see in primary and secondary education uh, in this country, right, I mean, that, that affects the university. And, uh, and any university professor will, will tell you that, you know, when the students come in and, and they don't know grammar and they can't spell and they can't read a text, we're in trouble, right? Um, and so, of course, that, that foundation needs to be there. But, I mean, we're talking about higher education. It's a very specific context. So in, in that context, the vision of liberal education that you've just described is not exactly kind of the dominant mode that most people think about American higher education in right now? No. It seems a little untimely. Could you talk about, a little about that? I mean, it's it's very inspiring. The University of Tulsa is beginning this new project. It just struck me how kind of against the grain of uh, the experience of a lot of students going into higher education that I talked to. Um, I, I'm, I, I don't think a lot of them even are thinking in these terms when they go off to college? No, absolutely not. I mean, we're trained now to think even of higher education as servile education, right? It's um, it's education for a career. And you want to be prepared to have a good career and make a lot of money. And I think that's not genuinely higher education. It may be higher in that the stakes are higher and the costs are certainly higher, um, but it's not genuinely higher education. And I think that when universities lose touch with what liberal education actually is, and they become very fancy trade schools, I think that we should question that. I do question that. Um, when the university only sees itself as producing experts, rather than anyone that has a modicum of wisdom about anything, right? When it can only produce specialists, when it cannot produce graduates who uh, know history, for example, who, uh, I mean, I, I think that the problems in higher education speak for themselves and it's very difficult to find a professor anyway who's happy with the status quo in higher ed, or at least I find it difficult to find. Uh, I think you'll find a lot of frustration for a variety of reasons. Um, and I think that we need to think about what sort of graduate we're really sending out into the world. Um, and we need to rethink general education. And of course, I'm far from alone <laughs> thinking that this is a problem. Uh, there have been many, many books written about this. Um, some of them, I think, are a bit more on point than others. Um, but, you know, I mean, we need to think about 
whether or not we really believe in liberal education uh, and what that would mean. So liberal education is obviously this this version of liberal education, what you've described, this kind of um, sense of there being a canon of great works, you know, with obviously flexibility in it and disagreements and new additions and old, you know, things going out. Um, but that's been itself under pretty strong critique for the last couple of years, primarily from the left. Um, and then I think there's also some sort of almost more interestingly disturbing, um, not critiques, but misuses from the right. Um, do you want to talk about the kind of the canon wars and, and that, that whole uh, primarily progressive um I guess, objection to or... Well, sure. I mean, the canon wars are nothing new. The canon wars were raging when I entered the university in 1996, right? And I, I just sort of naively um, expected that when I went to Indiana University, which, which is, yeah, it's a great university, and, and um, I ended up getting a great education... Um, but I expected that when I took, you know, my introduction to English English literature class that we would, like, be reading Shakespeare, and I was excited. And that is not what happened <laughs> at all. Um, and I think, and it was, a, it was an incredibly politicized environment. Um, and it was it was really clear that there was kind of a right way to think about things, and um, you know I I entered university wanting to be a writer, wanting to study English literature, and I think it took about six weeks for me to realize, yeah, I absolutely did not belong in that world at all, um, and I fled to philosophy where I found a happy home. But um, the canon wars were, were raging then, um, and I was kind of thrown into the middle of it. So again, um, you know, for me, I ended up giving myself, well, I mean, not giving myself, um, obviously with the help of professors, but I sort of cobbled together um, my, own, my own kind of great books education, not just in philosophy, but outside of it too. Like I made sure that I studied a lot of history and um, and even some literature. Um, you know, like I took a lot of classes in medieval literature, for example, um, because I wanted to know my own tradition. Now, what's the value of that? The value of that is, and I mean, here I'm I'm kind of um, riffing off of Roosevelt Montas in his uh, wonderful recent book, Rescuing Socrates. Um, you're in no position to criti criticize Western thought unless you know it, and you're in no position to advance it unless you know it. Um, and we've sort of lost sight of the value of cultural memory. Uh, and knowing the connection between that and, and self-knowledge, right? If we really want to understand ourselves, our society, uh, we have to understand 
where it's coming from, right? You, you have to go back to the sources. And that's true uh, even if you want to engage in some kind of radical critique of it. Um, and, and, and I think more broadly, it's true if you want to understand the way forward, right? You have to know where we've been. And I think that's true, not just um, in the sense whether or not you're a creator, for example, if you're an artist or a writer or a thinker, but I think it's also true politically. I mean, I think we suffer profoundly from a, a loss of historical knowledge. I mean, I have students who don't know like really basic things about World War II. I'm not talking about like nitty gritty battles or whatever, which, you know, whatever, it's confusing. Um, I, they just, they don't even know the basics. And now, I mean, and that's 20th century history. It's like they know almost nothing about the 19th century or the ancient world. I mean, it's really, it's distressing to me. And the reason they don't know it is because they're not being taught it. And the reason that they're not being taught it is because it's not on the standardized tests that have defined their education. But it also seems that there's something uh, just in the air that sort of devalues the idea of knowing about the past, of being in part of that intergenerational conversation from the outset. I mean, I have two teenage kids going to high school. Um, it's a lot less obvious to them than it was to me at their age, I guess, that, you know, uh, there would be something interesting about interacting with Socrates. You know, and there's, of course, a million books about this. I mean, Christopher Lash, you know, The Minimal Self, the sort of uh, the whole idea of, of modernity, uh, you know, uh, undermining the notion that the past should have any sort of value for us today, right? That, that seems to have really kind of just established itself uh, as a starting assumption uh, for a lot of kids. How do you, how do you puncture that? Well, I mean, I think that you have to, again, talk about, be willing to talk about the value of cultural memory, of understanding, I mean, and maybe memory more generally, right? Because another thing that we've lost, um, and again, this is in primary and secondary education, is the value of memorizing things, period. The value of I mean, sort of like no one... Uh, and education bothers to ask the question, sort of like, um, what should our kids remember? Because I can Google that. Right. Exactly. Well, yeah. So there's that. I mean, why why bother to remember anything? Um, and you sort of like, um, I mean, yeah. So there's a there's a kind of technological. Uh, well, why do we, we, I mean, the computers can remember for us and we can just consult them. And there, I think, uh, we might want to question the extent to which we are totally dependent on these machines. Um, I think a lot of people haven't totally thought that through yet, but also, I mean, when you are with yourself, that is to say, when you are in periods of solitude, whether it's forced or whether it's chosen, either way, 
Um, what do you have? Right? <laughs> um, I mean, so much of yourself is your memories. And what is it that you can retrieve from yourself? Can you retrieve a great poem? Can you retrieve, um, what, what, what sort of knowledge do you have ready to hand where you're not completely dependent on, uh, Google to tell you, um, I think that there's this question of the loss of the value of memory, but when it comes to historical memory and when it comes to cultural memory, again, I mean, I would connect it to having a deeper and more robust sense of self and self-knowledge. It's like, who are you? Where do you come from? What is your tradition? Um, and, and the, and the truth is for all of us, we are embedded in traditions, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, it's true. Um, nobody totally writes their own story. It's just a lie. <laughs> I mean, you don't. Um, and, and you're also really narrowing your vision of the possibilities if all you know is what's gone on in the past 30 years, if you know even that. So I was just kind of dunking on my kids. But on the other hand, I will say <laughs> in their high school, Sabrudorov High School, the Mad Academy, they have a great books program. And their teacher, I thought completely overambitiously, um, had them read through the entirety of the Republic at the beginning of the school year. A and it was remarkable to me how quickly that book did connect with them. It's a great book. Yeah. <laughs> I can't I believe mean, it. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's also really weird. Um, well, that was but, the, the weirdness is what caught their imagination. And it wasn't almost like they felt uh, quite alienated uh, in many ways, alienated, but they wanted to sort of get in there and, and argue about it. Yeah. Talk about the sex lottery. I mean, there's a lot of wild stuff in there. Um and I, and I think, you know, it's, um, I mean, one thing that's so beautiful about the Republic is, you know, that it's basically a text about justice. The whole thing is like, what is justice? And, and right away you have, uh, this dialectic that's set up, right? Where, you know, on the one hand, people are like, well, no, it's, it's kind of all will to power. It's, it's might makes right. And on the other hand, they're like, no, it's really just like um, the only it's it's really it's really just about um, kind of enforcing norms. So, um, you know, people the reason why people uh, do just things is because they're afraid. What are they afraid of? They're afraid that if they don't do the just thing or they don't follow the law right, that um, they'll be thrown in jail um, or they will, uh, you know, kind of suffer reputational harm. So, it, so it's those kinds of fears um, that keep people in line. Uh, and you need people, like you need that. Um, but that, but that's all that it is. And Socrates is sort of like, oh, is that all that it is? And by the end, you know, you're staring at the form of the good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, uh, 
<laughs> so, I mean, it's really, and, and there's the whole, you know, Plato is so great, um, especially for younger people, because he is, I mean, let's be honest, he's a bit easier to read. And one reason that he's a bit easier to read is that he has this um, kind of dialogue structure and he also is willing to engage in all kinds of wacky thought experiments and draw on myth um, and use metaphor. And so I think he is able to meet a lot of people in a way that, say, like Aristotle isn't because Aristotle's kind of, you know, going to stick to the arguments. Um, you're not going to get a lot of deep images or metaphors in Aristotle. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the Republic is perfectly suitable for kids in high school. I mean, Which they're, I would, they're... would never have guessed. And of course, you know, uh, you're going to have the conversations on the ride home afterwards about Socrates' own sex life. But, you know, I'll, I'll lay that aside. That's high school. Um, Susanna, you were going to ask a question. <laughs> I guess so. This is partly um, kind of talking about the way that classical education or the great books as a concept can be misused um, or done badly. And I think that there are a couple of in really interesting ways that that can happen. Um, and one of them is, I think, so you can, you know, all right, so when you first start sort of really reading this stuff, and when you first start re really reading it, not in a historicist sense, where it's just like, what did Plato think? Let's, you know, figure that out. Um, and be able to, you know, appropriately on a multiple choice quiz, say, Plato, let's connect him up with the form of the good, as opposed to, you know, Hegel, let's connect him up with, you know, the thesis, antithesis, synthesis, like something when you're actually starting to look at these questions and read these books in a way that's not historicist. Um, one of the things that you can can happen is that you start to have this belief or idea that there's like a single teaching, which Plato espoused and everyone afterwards agreed on uh, that is like the, the, and the decanting that teaching into people is the way is what we're aimed at doing. And, and that just seems to me to be an inappropriate understanding of what's going on as well. Can you, can you say more about what's inappropriate about it from your point of view? Well, it seems to me that like starting out from the idea that like what we want to get to is I mean, it's not that I don't want people to get to beholding the form of the good, because I definitely do. I mean, among other things, I'm a Christian. Um, but I think that thinking that, thinking of the tradition as something like Plato and everyone else all agreed on a, a specific teaching. Um, and what we want to do is get kids on board as fast as efficiently as possible with that teaching without bringing them through the kind of conversational and disagreement and dialectical aspects of oh, okay yeah, yeah yeah i see where you're, i see yeah. where you're going with that okay yeah so it's not about teaching the truth right um i don't even know what that would i don't even know what that would mean in the case of 
a genuine classical or great books education because uh, noticeably they disagree on a, on a range of important things, right? So, I mean, you could just look at differences between the Stoics and the Aristotelians, right? Of course, I mean, there are disagreements in Plato and Aristotle. They tend to be more metaphysical. And uh, I mean, I, I think Plato and Aristotle are, are pretty close together, uh, with, you know, at the end of the day. Um, imp important differences, and Aristotle was usually correct, but um, in my humble opinion. Uh, but I mean, there's just, there are debates, right? I mean, there are just many debates, um, about what living well amounts to within the ancient world, uh, within these texts. And, and that's, that's all to the good from, from my perspective. Um, so on the one hand, like sort of my vision of general liberal education and I should say that um, in terms of this honors college, like we're very committed to the idea that you can walk and chew gun at the same time. So we're very committed to the idea that you can have, you can and should have a general liberal arts curriculum uh, that is integrated and unified um, and also a major that you specialize in and you can start to do specialized research. So we think these two things can coexist happily beside one another. But when it comes to general education, right, what we want isn't to teach the truth. What we want is not to help these kids become many ancient scholars or experts, right, ready to talk about the fine details of any given text. What we want is for our students to learn the art of dialectic, right? That is, and that includes um, the cultivation of many skills, right? So how to read a text and, um, and things like that. But, but, but it's aimed at something much bigger than a skill, right? Um, it's aimed at being able to read a text in such a way that you can come to see like what it has to say to you um, today, right? As, as someone living in the 21st century um, and that you have something to say about how it bears on your life, on society. And that is something that I think involves a lot of give and take with other people and other texts right? So what we want is to read texts that pose certain questions to us, questions that I call dialectical, precisely because a dialectical question um, kind of admits of contrary answers. Um, so it's not like the question, like, what time is it? There's just an answer there that's true. I mean, people might give different answers, but somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Um, but then a question like, is time linear? That's a dialectical question, right? There's not just one obvious answer there. And with dialectical questions, precisely because it admits of contrary responses, we need to go much deeper and we need to learn how to engage in a kind of dialectical inquiry and exchange. And that is a disciplined thing. 
that is something that uh, you don't know how to do <laughs> prior to doing it, right? And I don't think that it's just a skill. Um, and I think that when you really and seriously and truly give yourself over to that, there is a chance actually that you will come out of it a, a wiser, deeper, more reflective, more self-aware person. And that's really what we're aiming at. I wonder whether, so as you were talking, I was thinking to my, I was sort of doing the, the pushback and the part of the pushback would be like, well, but we're, we're not people, at least, you know, you and I are not people who believe that, um, the, 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 there are no moral facts in a way. So in a sense, it's not the case that like a question about how to live well has an infinite number of possible answers, all of which might be correct, or that it's completely different than a question about like, what time is it? Um, but I wonder whether the difference might not be in something like you can learn what time it is without yourself being transformed, but you can't learn about what it means to live a good life just by having the information decanted into you. It like the process of learning itself changes you. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure what to say about moral facts um, or whether or not I believe in them. Yeah, I'm, I mean, that's sort of like, I mean, what category do we want to place moral truths in? I don't need to commit myself there one way or another, but I, but I am committed to the idea that, uh, for example, the question, what is justice, is a dialectical question. Um, um, it just is. And there is no um, just fact of the matter. Well, this is what it is. Um, and, and, I, and I don't think that it's a very serious liberal education um, to just be like, well, Aristotle said that justice is both a virtue and a state of affairs, and here's how it goes. And so that's what it is. Um, I mean, it's interesting to know what Aristotle said about justice, but it just doesn't give you very far. It just doesn't get you very far to approach the text like that. And even if we're just talking about a Christian context, um, although I've never taught in a Christian school, so that's not really the context that I myself I'm familiar with pedagogically, um, I, I just, I don't think you're going to get very far in your own faith if you're just like, well, this is what Calvin said, or this is what St. Thomas said, um, because there's a tradition. And the truth is that that tradition develops over time and that there are tensions within that tradition and there's also like a text, right, that all of that tradition comes out of that has notoriously been interpreted in different ways. Um, and you have to, again, sort of enter into that uh, dialectically. Um, and, and I don't think that just talking about facts is, is going to help you. Is it's, not, it's, just, it's just not going to help you get very far. Um, I mean, we can talk about moral truth. And of course, I, you know, I will make moral claims that I think are true as opposed to false. But uh, when it comes to defending my moral beliefs, uh, which of course I'm happy to defend, um, I certainly feel much more confident 
and what I can say about my moral beliefs now than I could have when I was 15. And the other thing is that, of course, my moral beliefs have changed. And all of that is the result of having had a liberal education. Yeah. When I was talking about moral facts, I was sort of pushing back against, I, w- I was sort of saying neither of us would probably agree on the idea of a sharp fact value distinction. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm happy to, um, I'm happy to talk about natural law or whatever. Um, but for the purposes of thinking about a liberal education, um, we can't, I mean, it's just, in my opinion, much broader than that. You can't just approach it as decanting a set of, you can't be a manualist about it. That's definitely true, right? <laughs> it's about, it's about, I mean, if we, if we want to get down to it, it's in a way it's about a kind of encounter and not just an encounter with a text, although it certainly involves that, but it's an, it's an encounter with other people who are approaching that text in a similar spirit and that in the best possible case have a common goal. Right. I mean, I think that liberal learning uh, only works well when everyone recognizes that they have a common goal in reading these texts and in talking about these texts together. And what's the goal? Right. Well, the goal is to try to gain some wisdom. Right. Or to have some universal knowledge. And again, that goes beyond mere facts. It goes way beyond them. So as we think about, as you think about t- taking on this new role of a dean of the Honors College at University of Tulsa, who is this liberal education for? Who's it good for? Um, well, I mean, it's it's good for the human being and the citizen. <laughs> so, so all of them. I mean, ideally, ideally, should everybody be getting a liberal education? Oh, I see what you're asking. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean... Um, a part of me feels like it depends on it depends on what you mean, right? When you say that, um, should everybody go to university? No, I don't believe that. Well, in a sense, your podcast or or a magazine uh, like Plows is dedicated to the same questions that you we began with, right? These fundamental questions about what makes a good life, what makes a good a, a good human society, right? Uh, that's what. Our magazine is about. I don't expect people to have a certain amount of degrees um, in order to be interested in those questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And so, we don't expect you to avoid trade school. Uh, y- you may be a great welder and still love to read Dostoevsky. I mean, I that's I I learned about Dostoevsky from a guy who was a really great leather worker. You know, as a right as a teenager. Right. Yeah, so I certainly don't want to be a gatekeeper. I certainly don't want to say the only way to study this is in my honors college or in something similar. I don't want to say that at all. Um, and I do, I I mean, I've devoted a lot of time, <laughs> personal time, to trying to make liberal learning freely available. And I'm going to continue to do that. But in terms of what's taking place in the Honors College at the University of Tulsa, that's going to be something, you know, above and beyond that. Um, 
I'll make my question more precise. There's a number of students who will be considering, should I do this kind of scary liberal education thing that seems a little bit against the flow of my fellow classmates who are learning useful things like how to be a physical therapist or accountant. Um, and there's parents wondering, you know, uh, whether this is a good use of their tuition money. Um, so how do you talk about those sort of real world concerns? And that's what I mean by partly by who, who's this good for? Well, I mean, as I said earlier, uh, we expect to have most of our students majoring in whatever they want so they can major in physical therapy or accounting. Um, I mean, I certainly have lots of students like that now. Um, so some of my best philosophy students are philosophy minors. What are their majors? International business, accounting, et cetera. Um, so, so that's... I mean, that, that's not a new thing. Um, and, and like I said, in the Honors College, we definitely believe that you can walk and chew gum at the same time. And so we think, yeah, if you want to have, um, if you want to have a specialized practical major, that's awesome. Um, but you will only be in the Honors College if you value a general liberal arts education. Because uh, otherwise you'd be, I mean, what, like, why would you come? <laughs> and um right it's and, not and, like and and this idea that students don't want it um it's just not true it's not true uh people keep saying it but i've been doing this for a long time and it's not true um they love this stuff when you when you i mean at least a large number of them do and for the students that don't again that's completely fine um the honors college is is intentionally a small intentional community. You don't you don't have to come in. But the thing is you shouldn't come in if all you want is another credential. Because it's not that. It's a much more serious thing. It's not another bell and whistle. It's not another uh it's it's not it's not another feather in your cap. There's no social points for hanging out at Plato's Academy. That's right. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, I think it's going to be a blast. I mean, I have so much fun in my job. And you can talk to my students and you can just ask them whether or not they're enjoying it. And I feel really confident in how they're going to respond. What's your favorite? Do you have one? Do you have a favorite kind of starter text? Like, you know, these, these students coming in, they're inspired. They want to be part of this community of learning, of discovering what the good life is, um, you know, what would you point them, th point them to first and, and why? Um, I'm not sure that I have a favorite starter text. Um, I mean, I think the, because the thing is the texts themselves aren't magical, right? I mean, they, um, I think the texts are great, obviously. Um, but that's, it's not, a text, a book is a book, right? And the book is only, um, I mean, the, the, the book's value um, is deeply connected to what we can make of it, right? Um, so for example, if you, if you told me about this book that was so great, but I couldn't read it for a variety of reasons, and I couldn't talk to anybody about it, 
then it, it doesn't have any value for me, right? And so again, it's about what what's the right environment for encounter? That's what I'm focused on. I'm not focused on any any one text, and I'm actually quite flexible um, within a kind of canonical structure. So I'm not I'm not like it's got to be this, or we absolutely have to read that. Um, that's not my approach. Um, you know, I I be really sad, for example, if, if some books were left out. But so, but I mean, the thing is with curriculum, you always have to make hard choices. And there's such a wealth of variety of, of classical text curriculum, all of which work beautifully, even though they're different texts. Um, and so I can't, I can't say that, that I have a favorite starter text. And, and it partly has to do with my personality, because I'm just always wanting to do something new. So, uh, which makes my life more difficult, but <laughs> so like, you know, most professors, like they'll just teach the same class every year. Cause like they've got it ready. I just can't, I'm like constitutively incapable of doing this. So every year I'm like, well, I'm just, I got to do something different. Uh, and my husband just rolls his eyes at me and just prints out the same <laughs> syllabus. <laughs> He's like, whatever. <laughs> Um, so sorry. It was that, good for the last bit. Yeah. He's like, it works. It's fine. Um, so anyway, I mean, I'm, I, I, I believe in a, in a canon, but I think the canon is quite large and capacious within the canon. There's so much. And I also think the canon, you know, should always be revisited and expanded. Um, it's not set in stone. Uh, it was not given to us, uh, by some holy figure, um, it's always in some sense up for grabs, but there has to be something, right, that we all kind of more or less recognize as tradition. And then within that, there's just such a wealth of variety and beauty and wonder. I mean, just get creative. That's what I try to do. But I do think in terms of the Honors College, uh, we do want to cultivate an environment where the students are by and large, kind of reading the same thing. Why? Because we want to create an intellectual community, right? We, we want them to, you know, in their spare time, uh, in their everyday interactions, you know, to, to be able to talk to one another about this stuff. Um, you know, the classroom, we want to be special, but the experience, we want to go well beyond the classroom and into the community at large. So Jen, in, in recent uh, recent weeks, not only you uh, had this exciting announcement about this great books program at the University of Tulsa, there was also quite a bit of news about Christopher Rufo taking on a position at the University of Florida, um, which was also uh, framed in, in terms of a renewed commitment to the great books. Is there something you know, fundamentally about the Great Books approach that kind of commits you to the Rufo, Scorched Earth, um, sort of partisan political uh, take on education? Uh, no, uh, absolutely not. Um, absolutely not. And, and, I, and I certainly hope that um, this kind of education doesn't get branded in, in one way politically um, because... It's just the exact opposite of, 
of what a real liberal education is meant to do. A, a real liberal education is not indoctrination into any kind of politics. It just isn't. Um, and also, a liberal education um, doesn't involve censorship. And uh, Chris Rufo is, is very committed to censorship. Um, he's very committed to, um, you know, shutting down scholars that have theories that he doesn't like. Um, and and I, and I just I want to have nothing to do with that. Absolutely nothing to do with that. Um, you know, I've I've made my entire life in the academy, and I would never uh, tell another scholar that, um, you know, they can't, um, <laughs> they can't teach their book or they can't talk about Marx or whatever. I mean, I mean, Marx is going to be part of our curriculum <laughs> at Tulsa. Uh, it would be a kind of, uh, impoverished canon without at least a little bit of Marx. I mean, it would, yeah. it would be, it would be crazy. It would be crazy. Um, and the idea that we're going to pick and choose based on politics, again, it's just, it's not what we're interested in doing. What we're interested in doing um, is something that I think, um, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to speak for Chris Rufo, uh, so I won't. Um, but what we are interested in doing is creating an environment where people with very different backgrounds and experiences and commitments political, religious, and moral can come together in a community and work for a common good. What's the common good? Namely, helping one another to understand and encounter this tradition and to try to grow in wisdom, right? We don't anticipate, and it would frankly be a little bit weird if on the other end of this sort of education, everyone came out with the same beliefs. That's not what we're, or the same politics, right? Or the same religion. That's not, <laughs> that's not what we are holding out hope for or the promise of. What we're, what we're holding out hope for, the promise of, is a kind of transformational intellectual experience. The kind that I had, the kind that changed my life, and the kind that so many of my closest friends have had and that have changed their lives and the kinds of encounters that we know so many historical figures have had and have written about, right? I mean, and, and the truth is on both sides politically, people have given up on the idea of having these sorts of communities. Um, and they've given up, I think, on real liberal learning. I mean, that's the real, <clears throat> I mean, that's the real kind of radical thing that we're trying to do is that we are trying to create a space where people are allowed to disagree and to think together and to try to make progress where there's no assumption right, that they're going to come out agreeing. Um, but it's also not just debate. It's not about scoring points. It's not about winning. It's not about competition at all, right? Uh, wisdom's not a competitive good. 
if I get a little bit wiser, there's not like less wisdom for you. <laughs> That's the beautiful thing about it. Um, and so it's just not, you know, it's just a different environment that we're going to strive to create. I certainly believe that it's possible. Um, but it's going to take people being invested in it. And that means not being partisan. That means not seeing this other person who isn't, you know, isn't a Platonist, but is a Marxist, not seeing that person as your enemy, as someone that you have to own, right? It's not about owning anybody. It's not about gaining political power. That's not what we're about. It does seem like the politicization of the great books approach or of liberal learning it's it's making it into another kind of servile art it's making it into something that serves an end beyond itself well it's, even it's, though that it's, end yeah. it's fundamentally illiberal right yeah i agree with both of those things i think it instrumentalizes something that's supposed to be good in itself and it divides people for the sake of conquering and I don't want to divide people we're divided enough. I want to create a space where you can have real honest community. That's what I, I mean, I'm just fundamentally committed to that. Uh, and I, and I absolutely believe it's possible and I'm very hopeful about it. Which books would you recommend to our listeners, Jen, um, to kind of delve farther into these themes? I know you mentioned Roosevelt Montes's beautiful book. Yeah, you know what I'm going to say. It's Xena Hits Lost in Thought. <laughs> there you're not surprising me. <laughs> I'm just so predictable. It's such a beautiful book. It's beautiful. Um, it's beautiful and uh, more people should read it. I feel like it might be the book that comes up most frequently. Well, like the contemporary book that comes up most frequently on both the podcast and in people's essays. For yeah, I mean, this seems Zena's, to be, uh, Zena's like one of my heroes. Yeah. Definitely a plow sweet spot. Yeah. She's fantastic. I mean, we could just end. So Zena hits Lost in Thought and Rescuing Socrates by Roosevelt Montes. We'll drop those into the show notes. Yeah. Is there any older books that you kind of turn to um, to orient people to sort of cultivate the right attitudes um, to pursuing a liberal education? I mean, there are books that really influenced me. Um but I think they're not totally unproblematic. Um, so, for example, you know, there's the very famous um, <clears throat> book by the Dominican uh, A.G. Is it Sertelange? Sertelange, yeah. yeah. I never quite am confident on pronouncing his name. Um, that book was really formative for me, but... It's also like has all this stuff about how you need a woman like cleaning your clothes and taking care of you so you can read more. Um, the Intellectual Life by A.G. Yeah. I'm looking at it right now. That's, actually. that's like a little annoying. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I throw out – what about um, Leisure of the Basis of Culture? Oh, Joseph yeah, Cooper. absolutely. Sorry. I, I mean, mean that's – Yeah. I mean that book um, – I mean that that book is just – maybe perfect uh, yeah i have no no qualms with and it there's whatsoever. nothing about needing a child needing that whatever. that yeah, yeah i <laughs> yes thank you for giving lines, me the lines answer. i will not try on my wife <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 hey wilma 
Guess what Sertolange says. (laughs) (laughs) Make me a sandwich so I can finish this, Augustine. Yeah, no. Husbands don't say that. Um, I'd I'd be sleeping on the couch for a week. All one needs to contemplate is a sandwich of one's own. That's right. Well, all the best for this, uh, Jen. This sounds extremely exciting and absolutely is part of what we hope to support and be about as a magazine and as a podcast. Uh, Listeners, definitely check out uh, Jen's podcast, Sacred and Profane Love, where you will rediscover or discover the first time some really great works of literature with some fascinating guests. you know, Karen Swallow Pryor, uh, fr- friend of the pod and a plow author is one. Zena Hitz, we mentioned, uh, y- y- your own husband, uh, C- Christopher Frey. Yeah. And uh, many more. So it's a great podcast. Um, I love the uh, Cornell West one on James Baldwin as well. Yeah, that was a banger. That was a good one. My old professor. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I have a recent one with Dana Joya uh, that I also think is is pretty wonderful on Baudelaire. All righty. Well, thank you so much, Jen. Okay. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, it. Jen. Okay. Good, great talking. Bye. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books, to regular calls with the editors, to invitations to special events, and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plow community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plow.com to learn more. Our next episode will be the first of our new series, linked to our pain and passion issue. And in it, Pete and I will be inviting onto the pod an imaginary special guest, C.S. Lewis. Talk to you then.